John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, explains the purpose of this gospel. So if you have your, in your margins, if you write in the margins of your Bible, you need to, at the very beginning of John, write down John 20, verses 30 and 31, because that's why we have this book. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, real quick, with that believing, it's not knowing the facts we understand. A lot of people understand the facts. They've heard the story about Jesus coming to earth, dying on a cross, being buried, rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, will be returning for his church. Many people know the facts of the gospel. That's not the believing that's spoken of here. Quincy, you're on the side pew. Come on up here. We'll use this side, Quincy. All right. Back in the day, uh, I was working with students. Quincy, come on over here, man. Step on up, top step. I was teaching a group of middle school students talking about faith, how uh, faith is actually action. Like, you guys had enough faith to sit down in the pew that it would hold, uh, that it'd be comfortable. You wouldn't sit on something, pew wouldn't break, right? You exercise that faith in action. By faith, such and such happened. By believing, such and such happened. And so this is what we're looking at when John writes this book. By believing in Jesus, it's believing that he is the Son of God. That he is to be worshipped. That he is worthy for us to center our lives around him. That the point of living is not for ourselves, it's for Jesus. And so it's that type of believing. It causes us to do something. To place all of our trust, all of our faith in Christ. So go ahead, turn around. Now do not fall backwards. We're just providing a picture. So I had all these middle schoolers go up, and across the street was this middle school, and they had bleachers out for their uh, basically lunch recreation. And you know what? I wanted these middle schoolers to exercise a lot of faith. So I had them go up, not to the first bleacher, not to the second, but to the top bleacher. And then you guys have heard of this, trust falls, right? We had all the middle schoolers lined up, and I made sure I was back a little bit to where I would catch a lot of the weight, and we had our strongest middle schooler on that side, and I feel, felt like with all of these guys lined up, we're going to be okay. So we went, and they fell backwards, and just think the, the momentum falling backwards. But all these guys got up there. Yeah, I, I believe. Prove it. Show us your faith. Boom, falling. Boom, falling. Catching. All right, step down. It got to the last guy. He was the guy I was dependent on to catch people. Well, we put him up top. Because they were starting to get out. Hey, you don't have faith. He goes up there. But instead of falling backwards, he bends his knees and falls. We had our smallest middle schoolers up front. Boom. He hits the ground. Thankfully, he didn't hit his head. He wasn't concussed. You can go back and sit down. He wasn't concussed. He was just a little sore. And then I had to explain to parents, how in the world did this happen during Sunday school? Faith. Believe. And then, here's the worst part. After he fell, the, the student said, Hey, Brown, where's your faith? <laughs> I, mean, I ain't getting up there. I've got no faith in you all, right? So when we see believing, it's not just, oh, I know the facts. It's, yes, I know exactly who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Believing is centering your life around him. That you trust him for salvation. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I've missed the mark. But I believe Jesus hit the mark, that he is perfect. 
and that his death counts for my righteousness. That's what believing is about. And so I, I want to make sure when we go over that by believing, it's not just knowing some facts, because we're talking about some facts today. And it's important truth that we need to know. But I want to make sure we're crystal clear on what believing means. So let's read. Um, we're, we're going to read the first 14 verses. And, and I hope, because we've spent quite a bit of time here the last three weeks, I hope this chapter is starting to sound familiar. Verse 14 should be memorized. Right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is central to who we are as believers. That is a central truth that we need to know. We need to teach it to our children. We need to hide it in our hearts. It affects, it changes how we do day-to-day living. And that's what we're going to talk about. But let's start. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, not John the Gospel writer. His name was John. He came to, as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is what Christmas is all about. The true light, the light of the world, bursts onto the scene through a virgin birth. His name is Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, help us behold the glory of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So this past uh, football season, we have the starters, and then we have the scout team. And our scout team, we try to get the best available who will push our starters. And so it's, it's first team offense, and they're up, and they're running the ball, pushing these guys all over the place, and we have to pull in a freshman. Now, this freshman's scared to death, right? There's a reason why he was standing behind the coaches outside of the play. He didn't want anybody to see him, nobody to call his name, but we were down. We needed a guy, and he was the guy. So we put him up on the defensive line, and he's asking me a hundred questions. Coach Brown, what do I need to do? What if I have this? But, hey, man, you don't have to worry. If he goes down, just squeeze. If he goes out, try to run outside of him. Don't get blocked. Don't get hooked. And then I tried to, like, man, I'm giving him too much. I made it simple. I go, hey, man, you see number 15? Number 15 is Amarion Arnold. Amarion Arnold is a large man he squats he bench presses he deadlifts a lot of plates and the problem was he was the running back and I said you see number 15 over there he runs like a freight train if you see him coming towards you get out of the way 
it's not worth it. And he goes, well, what if this guy, blah, blah, blah. Do you see number 15? If he's around, stay away. Hey, it worked. It worked. My man was locked on. He's like, I don't want to avoid this guy. But he made sure to keep his eyes on Mr. Arnold, the four-year starter, middle linebacker, probably one of our best football players that I've coached at Holmes. Just stay away from him. Know where he's at. But you know what? That's a pretty good philosophy to have this Christmas. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Know who the Word is. You see, what, what I'm a little bit afraid of is there's a lot of manger scenes, right? So, so we have this one. Thousands, thousands, and thousands of manger scenes. And, and they have this baby in the manger. And because it's so common, I'm afraid it becomes commonplace in our hearts. And we just walk on by. The thing I'm thankful for at Christmas is I hope and I pray that we slow down enough to get our eyes on Jesus and we see his glory. Did a little research, tried to look at how we spend our, our Christmas season, how we spend our Christmas time. Guess how many hours the average American spends shopping? 15. 15 hours. Now, you might be saying, well, heck, that's a deal. I'm nowhere close to that. Some of you might be saying, that's it? Only 15? Guess how many hours spent wrapping presents? Three hours. I don't know about you. That is not my gift. I spend some time wrapping, and it looks like I spend less time wrapping. <laughs> I cannot stand wrapping presents. I'm not very good at it. Mother-in-law, very good. Stapled it, ribbon, bows. It takes longer to open the present uh, than it does to enjoy the present for the year. The anticipation's building. You're trying to get the staples out. She is fantastic at wrapping presents. There was uh, an average hour devoted to returning gifts for the Christmas season. So that, the thing you have your hopes on in giving, you're like, oh, they're going to love it, could be the gift that's getting returned on the 26th. Then we looked for holiday travel. It was seven and a half hours. Average person spends traveling, doing different things. Also, it was 12 hours spent at different parties. So you got your work party, maybe a neighborhood, maybe a family. Then you got to go to both sides of the family. You try to make everyone happy, ends up nobody's happy. That's how we spend our Christmas time. But Christmas, I'm like, we're off school, but I feel like we're busier than ever. So for me personally, we've got different family. We've got four kids. We try to celebrate. We've got things at church. We've got basketball tournaments, and it just keeps going and going and going. And it's like the coach that says, hey, just know where number 15 is. God's saying, hey, just know where my son is. Keep your eyes on him. Glorify him in everything that you do. It really is that simple. And so that is our goal this morning. Take a deep breath. Get your eyes on Jesus and keep them there for the rest of your life. That's the type of glory Jesus has. Do not miss his glory. So, number one, you have to know the Word. You have to know the Word. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5 says, But when the time, the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, 
that we might receive adoption to sonship. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The fullness of time has come. And so God has sent his son. We see this here with the word. You see this? This was the sermon preached. It was the last two weeks, really. There's six things that you need to know about the word. And and students, Mike, Noah, Demarcus, Joshua, Quincy, you should have this memorized from last Wednesday. Six things that you need to know about the word. Number one, the word is eternal. Jesus is eternally God. And a lot of people do not know that. Right? Other religions will say, well, Jesus came on the scene about 2,000 years ago. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus is eternally the Son of God. There is no beginning to Jesus because in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is eternal. It also means Jesus is God. The Word is God. You see that in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. He's eternal. And the Word was God. He is deity. The fullness of deity. There's not God the Father's really God and then God the Son's a little bit less, but still, no. He is equally God. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. He's eternally the Son of God. He was with God. God wasn't lonely and so He created the universe. No, God is loving and so He created the universe. But he was in perfect relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He wasn't lonely, he wasn't depressed. Perfection on display. We also know that it's the Word that created all things. See that later on in verse 3, nothing was made that was made without Him. And then we keep reading, we see that the Word is life. Maybe you're here, you're wondering what life is all about. You're trying to find purpose. Uh, You might be searching and hoping for a relationship to work out. You might be searching, hoping for a job to work out. You might be searching, hoping that school works out or the right college. It's not the purpose of life. You want to find life? You go to the Word because the Word is life. And His name is Jesus. Not only is He life, He's also light. You want to know what light does? Light will show you how to think and show you what to do. And we'll speak more about this next week, about Jesus being full of grace and truth. But there's so much confusion in our world because we're saying we see and yet we're blind. But if you want to see, run to the light. That's what you see in the first 13 verses of John chapter 1. That's who the Word is. The Word is eternal. He's God. He's eternally the Son of God. He is life. He is light. And He's creator. Do you see the value in Christ? Now, I did a little research with the Price is Right. You guys know what the Price is Right. They spin the wheel. They guess on showcases. Lots of games. I feel like if I was on there, I might be able to win. I want Plinko where they drop and hopefully they land on some dollar amounts. Looks like a fun game. Well, the biggest winner. Now, this is going back. It's a little dated. The biggest winner up until December 30th, 2013, was a lady named Cherie Heal. She had won an Audi R8 Spider, which is a nice car, worth $157,000. And you know on the, the thing before you win a prize, there's the, the guy on the speaker and he gives the background. And he's like... The Audi R8 Spider is a V8 engine that delivers over 400 horsepower, goes up to 60 mile per hour in just a little over four seconds. 
It's a quattro all-wheel drive system, convertible with leather interior, features automatic climate control, automatic windshield wipers, headlights. Then I was like, oh, I've got this in my truck. A six CD changer parking system. I thought, well, all right, that, that sounds pretty cool. Top speed, 186 mile per hour. That's where the truck and this car have nothing left similar. But you want to know what? She was excited when she heard about the prize, and the prize was this car. Well, you get to win a new car, and you see the crowd goes nuts, and she goes nuts. But then you see joy explode when she won the contest. Right? So you can see the car, and then you can see her reaction. When you understand how valuable something is, joy explodes out of your life. You know who the word is? It's God. You want to know how much you're loved? You're loved so much that when you couldn't get to him, he came to you. That's what Christmas is all about. We'll go to uh, the Grinch, and I don't care which one you like. The cartoon version, the newer cartoon version, or the one with Jim Carrey as the Grinch. But the Grinch had some wise words about Christmas. And the Grinch, with the Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, this is after he had stolen all the presents, cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling, and how could it be so? Came without ribbons, came without tags, came without packages, boxes, and bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't thought of before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more? Matthew 13, 44 says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought the field. So when John says, hey, the word, that's value. That is infinite value. So valuable that in our joy, we should lay everything aside so we can cling to Jesus. That's how valuable the Word is. The Word is Jesus, the Son of God, creator of all, who came to earth. So number one, know the Word. Number two, know the God-man. The Word became flesh. Now, He didn't stop being God because He became man. In Jesus, you have someone that is unlike anybody else on the planet. He is fully God, and He is fully man. That is keeping it 100. 100% God, 100% man. You're like, how can that be? I don't know. He's God. But I do know this. Colossians 2.9, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. That's what it means. And the Word became flesh. Or Philippians 2, 6-7 says it this way. Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus laying aside his glory, coming to earth, being placed in a manger. The ESV Study Bible has this to add. It says, The word became flesh does not mean the word ceased to be God. Rather, the word who was God also took on humanity. 
This is the most amazing event in all of history. The eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, infinitely holy Son of God took on human nature and lived among humanity as one who was both God and man at the same time. That's who's in the cradle. That's who's in the manger. Fully God, fully man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, there's three things I want us to focus on about the Word becoming flesh, and this is not an exhaustive list. We could spend week after week unpacking this verse. But there's three for us this morning. And the first one is this. The Word became flesh so He could lay His life down for us. The Word became flesh so He could lay His life down for us. That's very, very important. Right? Because when you get your eyes on the cradle, you also need to reflect on the cross. Don't think about Bethlehem without getting to Calvary. That's why He came in the first place. We see this all throughout Scripture. John 6, 51, Jesus is speaking, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. Right? He's saying, this is my body, which I will give for the life of the world. Or, John chapter 2, 19 and 21, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Or John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. Can you imagine that mission? Jesus knows what is happening. Gets the go-ahead from the Father, comes to earth. He lays aside the glory that was His from all eternity in heaven to come to earth. And the whole reason He came was a rescue mission. And you know what? It's something to rescue somebody. It's another to risk your life as you rescue somebody. And Jesus knows exactly what's at stake. He knows exactly what it's going to take. And yet he comes to this earth. When you hear it, the word became flesh. Understand the love that is expressed in that verse. I love you. I will not leave you. I am coming for you. That's what it means when we read the word became flesh. Took on flesh so he could lay it down, but he also... The Word became flesh because He knows what we are going through. The Word became flesh means that Jesus knows exactly what you and I go through. Now this is very, very important. Because some people see that God created the universe and then He's hands off, sets it in motion, and backs away. Good luck. That's how some people view God. But that's not our God. He is involved in creation. We see that with Jesus. He made everything. He sustains everything. But He also knows what it's like to be hungry. Like right now, I would imagine, it's getting close to lunchtime, some of you are worried that your stomach's going to growl and the neighbor sitting next to you is going to hear it, right? You're you're a little bit hungry. Well, Jesus knows about hunger. The word became flesh means Jesus knows how hunger feels. We read in Matthew after he fasted, he said, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. You think? 40 days without food, he's starving, he's weak. He understands how that feels. 
The word became flesh means that Jesus knows how exhaustion feels. You might have a friend or a family member that sleeps through anything. Well, listen to how Matthew describes it in chapter 8, verse 24. Suddenly, a furious storm came up to the lake so that the wave swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. He's exhausted, walking all over the place, healing and providing and teaching. So much so that a huge storm couldn't wake him up. Now, I don't want you to think he's on a cruise ship. That's not the type of boat he had. It's a small boat in some big water with some big waves and some big wind. It's a big deal because you've got fishermen that are terrified they're about to lose their lives. Most people would be panicked in this situation. And yet what we see is Jesus is exhausted. He knows what exhaustion is. Maybe you're here, you're tired. You've been running on fumes. You've tried to take care of a lot of things and you're exhausted. Jesus knows about exhaustion. The word became flesh also means that Jesus knows about the pain of losing a loved one. Many of you have gone through this recently. Many of us will go through this in our future. In John 10, 32 35, it says, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along were also weeping. and He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus knows about losing a loved one. But you're like, ah, yeah, Ben, but he also went to the tomb moved the stone, told him to get up, and Lazarus came out of that tomb. Well, guess what? For all of your loved ones in Christ, he's going to do the same thing. And whether it's four days or 40 years or whenever Jesus returns, it's no more difficult for him to do that than what he did for Lazarus. Jesus knows about the pain of losing a loved one. The word became flesh also means that Jesus knows about being betrayed. You ever have a friend backstab you? People talk behind your back, gossip in a corner about who you are or what you've done. Son of God knows about that. Judas was with Jesus day in and day out for three years. Can you imagine that? Remember who the Word is. The eternal Son of God, creator of the universe. And every day, Judas is right by him, but somehow... He thought for 30 pieces of silver, it was worth betraying the Son of God. It's estimated to be about $3,000 today. Smack on the table, deal. Can you imagine that? Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed, to be let down. The word became flesh also means that Jesus knows about pain. Maybe you're here, maybe you're in pain. Could be physical, could be mental, could be emotional, could be spiritual. You understand what Jesus went through on the cross. Maybe you haven't heard, but we read that Jesus was mocked by those he created and sustained. The breath in their lungs was because Jesus was reigning and ruling, 
and they're hurling insults at him. He was spat on. He was beaten with a whip of leather cords with pieces of bone and metal. So as the cords wrapped around his body, this body was ripped apart. That's what it means for the word to become flesh. Had a crown of thorns, shoved, smashed down on his head. He had flesh that would bleed as thorns are shoved on his head, on his scalp. He was beaten with a scepter. So shoulders ridiculed him. He was crucified, large spikes driven through his hands and his feet, and then a spear through his side. Jesus knows about pain. He's on the cross, and he's suffocating because he can't get air to his lungs. The word became flesh means that Jesus knows about pain. And you want to know what all of that, I don't think, is the most painful thing he endured. You remember seeing Jesus in the garden? He's asking his disciples, Jesus withdrew by a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will be done, but yours. Then it says, an angel came, appeared, and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The pain that was about to happen was the cup he was going to drink. The Father was about to judge the sin of the world. My sin on Christ and so when you hear Jesus cry out father why have you forsaken me it's because of my sin and your sin that's the cup he's asking to pass Jesus knows about pain the word became flesh also means that he knows about temptation now here's the awesome news Hebrews 4 15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet did not sin. Think about this. He was hungry, but he was never hangry. Think about the guys he hung out with. You ever have people in your life that it's hard to be patient with? Think about the dudes Jesus was hanging with. Like he's just walking through and they're missing the point that he again and again says, you have little faith. Like, do you not know who's with you? It's not a hard thing to feed these thousands of people. It's not a hard thing to calm the storm. It's not a hard thing to touch the leper and make him well. The disciples again, Jesus is marching towards the cross and there's an argument back here. So remember this, when you're driving to... The family and you got kids arguing in the back seat. Jesus had to deal with the same stuff. He's walking to lay his life down. And the disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus, I want this seat. I want this seat. Can I have this position? They don't get it. And yet Jesus, without sin, shows perfect patience. The Word became flesh. And did so perfectly. He was never impatient with people. He never lied to people. Never stole from anyone. He wasn't greedy. You guys remember the WWJD craze? It's a little bit before and after most of us in the room. But for me, in middle school, it was big business. You get a bracelet, you'd have W dot W dot J dot D dot. And that would stand for what would Jesus do 
You see, when he took on flesh, he becomes the perfect example of how we should live. Paul puts it this way. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In Jesus, we have the fullness of joy. As you read the New Testament, you see Jesus, you see joy. In Jesus, we have the fullness of joy. In Jesus, we have peace personified. In Jesus, we see self-control absolutely controlled. The soldiers, they beat him with a scepter, and then they say, if you're the son of God, tell us who hit you. Right? They covered up his face. They thought it was a fun game. It would not have been a hard thing for Jesus to say exactly who it was. Could have took the air out of their lungs right then. Could have called down angels and wiped out all of Rome, but self-control absolutely controlled. In Jesus, we see love perfected. In Jesus, we see truth embodied. In Jesus, we see the gentleness and goodness of God. In Jesus, we see the kindness of a Savior. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through because he took on flesh. And then the, the third part about him taking on flesh, took on flesh so he could lay it down, took on flesh so he could empathize with us in our weakness, but he also took on flesh, and that means something for our lowly bodies. And I don't know who it is in the room. Somebody in this room is in the best shape. And in 100 years, it won't matter. Our bodies are weak, and they're fading. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Jesus right now has a body that will not fade. And you too will one day have a body that won't grow old, won't grow tired, won't grow weary. And I just put this out here. I've got some examples. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But if you notice Ava walking in, she has crutches. Sprained ankle. Body hurts. Our drummer has a boot on. Hurt his foot at work. Don't like to dwell on it, but my hairline keeps on going. It was waving goodbye a long time ago, and now it's gone, gone. And the hair that decided to stick around is turning white and gray. All right? Then it gets a little bit more serious. This past week, grandparents went to the ER. The first one went to the ER. Grandpa goes to the ER, has fluid on his lungs, and it's not caused by cancer. And we thought, oh, great news. It's caused by a weak heart that can't pump fluid off of his chest. Grandma, feeling left out, said, you know what? I'm going to go to the ER too this week. She had legs that were swollen up because blood's not circulating the way it should be. And then this morning gets a call that she falls. Grandma is one of the toughest women I know. She was the one we're visiting as a, a young kid. She gets out of the car and threatens to whoop up two kids picking on a little boy. And I think she could do it. From the mountains of Kentucky, Appalachia, tough as nails, brings so much life and energy and strong hands. And then there's Grandpa who would keep track of his steps and just keep counting his steps on his counter, walk the laps at Stitham Baptist Church in the gym. I loved it because after he got done walking, he'd whoop me at basketball. He'd be generous and gracious. He'd take me out to North Harden High School, and we'd go around the track, and I'd keep up with him on my tricycle, moving and moving and moving. 
He'd always send me his stats on the golf course. Tried to play his age in holes. But you want to know something funny happened. He got to the point where he couldn't keep up with his age. And now he doesn't golf anymore. Why? Because these bodies that we have, they fade. You want to know what the awesome news is? We're getting new ones. We're getting new ones. And our bodies will be like his glorious body. That's what it means when you see the word became flesh. And, and you know what? It's not a hard thing for him. We have nap time at our house. Now, with Dia, everybody knows when it's nap time because it is very dangerous to make a sound. If you drop something, you, you're going to have some punishments because it's so easy to wake her up. So easy to wake her up, and we want her to sleep because, one, if she doesn't get a rest, it's brutal on everybody else for the next few hours, and two, it's fine, peace and quiet. Now, I don't want to complain about Dia. She is a gift and a joy, but it's not very hard to wake her up. You know what? Same will be said of us. When Jesus returns with his glorious body and he raises us from the grave, it's not a hard thing for him. It's easier for him to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body than how easy it is to wake Dia up. And that is truth. That's what it means for the word to become flesh. And next week we're going to pick up on this. He dwelt among us. You, don't, it, you see, it means something when you're with people. When you're in the boat, compared to when you're on the shore. When you're in the game, compared to when you're a spectator up in the stands, Jesus comes to us. He's with us, and his presence makes all the difference. John gives us two ways to respond. In verses 11 and 12, he said he came to his own, but his own didn't recognize him. Came to those which he created, but they didn't receive him. So that's one response that many people have today. Right? They understand Christmas is something, Jesus did something, whatever. But many in the world will ignore him and reject him. But then, verse 13 adds, verse 12 and verse 13, says, To as many as receive him, to as many who believe in his name, he gave them rights to become children of God. And that's my prayer. My prayer is that we receive and believe in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us here this morning. Lord, we ask for your spirit to move. Father, there's some in the room that may, for the first time, want to receive and believe in Jesus today. I pray that they don't leave without making that decision. Father, there's many in the room that have heard the Christmas story again and again, but I ask that you open up our eyes to see again the glory that belongs to your son Jesus, who took on flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace, full of truth. Help us see his glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.